Our focus on the Sunday before Christmas is going to be the Son of God has come into the world to take away or to destroy the works of the devil. Last week we looked at one of those works, namely Satan takes away the word often when it is preached. And today we look at another one of those tactics of the devil, namely he uses sexual desire. Let's pray before we begin. Father, my prayer this morning to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, is that last week's message will come true, that Satan will be frustrated, that the word will find a resting place in well-plowed hearts, moistened by the Holy Spirit, ready to bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. There are many things in this message that, Lord, could be misapplied And therefore, I beg your Holy Spirit's assistance in not only the speaking, but the hearing through Jesus Christ. Amen. There are four lessons in this text that I would like to lay out and unfold, some briefly more, others more extended. One, celibacy is a gift from God to be celebrated. Number two, celibacy is not for everybody. Number three, marriage is a dam against the flood of fornication and adultery in the world. And number four, Satan uses sexual desire. So let's take those one at a time and see what this text has to say about them. Celibacy is a gift to be celebrated. You could call 1 Corinthians 7 Paul's manifesto for the single life or for the unmarried life. When he says in verse 1, it is well for a man not to touch a woman, he means the same thing that he does in verse 8, where he says, to the unmarried and the widow, I say, that it is well for them to remain single as I do. In other words, it is good not to touch a woman means it is good to be single. Paul was so completely committed to the life of celibacy that he wanted everybody to have it. But the reason he was committed to celibacy is very different from the reason many people today opt for celibacy, even breaking marriages to have celibacy. Paul wanted celibacy because he would be freed to be the slave of Jesus more than if he were married. Today, people want celibacy often because they simply want to be free for self-realization, not to be anybody's slave. God has called many of you to celibacy. And the lesson of this text this morning is that you should be dreaming dreams about how under God, to maximize the unique freedom that you have for his purposes. No wife or children did Paul have to take into account when he had a dangerous mission. No money had to be spent on clothing or education for little Paul Jr. No time had to be taken preserving and cultivating his relationship with his wife. Paul enjoyed an unusual freedom for God, absolutely at Christ's disposal, 24 hours a day, 
I experienced some of that when Noel took the boys and went away for 10 days down to Nebraska. It was phenomenal how free I was for ministry. I didn't pay any attention to mealtimes. If it was more convenient to go to the hospital at six, I didn't have to worry that supper was on the table. If you're single, you have a remarkable privilege of accessibility for Jesus Christ. Dream about it. Don't fret about it. Second, celibacy is not for everybody. Verse 7 says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. In other words, as much as Paul wanted to commend celibacy to everybody, oh, I wish you could have what I have, he deferred to the wisdom of God who parcels out his calls and his gifts differently to different people. Celibacy is not for everybody. Third, marriage is a dam against the flood of fornication and adultery in the world. It's a dam against fornication, that is, premarital sexual relations. In verse 1, he says that it's good not to touch a woman. That is, it's good to be single and not to be sexually active at all. Period. That's good, he says. And then he adds in verse 2, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, there's an implication here about premarital sex that is very clear if you're just thinking with Paul. It's a prohibition of it. There are a lot of evangelicals around today who are saying that the word for immorality, which occurs right here, pornia, means no promiscuity. But if you're engaged, committed, sharing all the other forms of intimacy, it's all right. In fact, it's healthy, whether you're married yet or not. Now, that's an example of taking the word out of its moral and theological context. Because if you just read 1 Corinthians 7, you cannot come up with that conclusion. For example, look at the end of the chapter, verses 36 and 37. It says, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed. Now, the word betrothed means virgin. It's virgin in Greek. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his virgin, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in this in his heart to keep her as a virgin... That's what it means, literally, to keep her a virgin. He will do well, which takes us right back to verse 1. You do well not to touch a woman. Now, let's be honest. What does this text mean? Is it not clear what Paul teaches about premarital sex for engaged couples? He teaches that singleness is to be preferred 
That's his preference. He wished everybody would be single. But that when sexual desire is that strong, what do you do? Go ahead and sleep together since you're committed to each other and have experienced all the other forms of intimacy. Is that the counsel of these verses? The counsel of the verses is very sober. Get married. Premarital sexual intercourse for engaged couples is not a Christian option. It is not a biblical option. And you don't have to dilly-dally around the meaning of the word parnaya. All you need to do is attend to the, the context of what he says. The same thing. Go back to verse 2. Because of temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He does not say that the solution to the temptation to immorality is to make verbal commitments to each other as an engaged couple and then experience sexual fulfillment. He says, get married. You can't commit fornication after you're married, but you can commit adultery. So Paul goes on to say that not only is marriage a dam against the flood of fornication in the world, it's a dam against adultery. Look at verses 3 through 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, her marital rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Do not refuse one another, except perhaps by agreement for a season, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. Now, it seems to me that that text plainly teaches that sexual satisfaction in marriage is intended by God as a dam against the flood of adultery. Husbands and wives have a duty to offer sexual relations to each other in such a way that the temptation to adultery is significantly weakened. Now, notice carefully how I said that. Husbands and wives have a duty to offer each other sexual satisfaction in such a way that it diminishes the temptation, the vulnerability to adultery. The reason I put it like that is because there are a lot of things that go into making the life of sexual relations satisfying and thus effective in building a dam against the flood of adultery. And I want to just mention three of those things. One of them is explicit in the text. I think the other two would be implied. The explicit one is the frequency of sexual relations between a husband and a wife. Paul says, don't stay apart too long, in verse 5. So that frequency is one element in the whole sphere of what makes sexual relations satisfying. Here's another one. I think that being physically attractive to each other is part of what makes sexual relations satisfying. Now, this is an extraordinarily sensitive and complex issue. 
It's, it's sensitive because there are things about ourselves we can't change. And there are other things we'd like to change, and it is really hard. So it's a sensitive thing. It's a complex thing because human beings have the wonderful capacity, when they are united deeply in their hearts, to see beauty in each other that nobody else can see. And so it is, it is sensitive, and we must be very careful how we talk about the issue of attractiveness, and it is complex. Nevertheless, let me just try to say one general thing that I think will still hold true. If it's true, and I leave open that for you to decide, if it's true that being physically attractive to each other is part of what makes sexual relations satisfying and thus effective in building a dam against the flood of adultery, then this text, by implication, teaches husbands and wives to be attractive to each other. None of us can compete with the sex symbols of our day, neither men nor women, and we shouldn't try. In fact, some among us are probably trying way too hard and probably spending way too much time, way too much money, way too much thought in cultivating the outward appearance, both married and single. But surely there is a biblical balance. Surely there's a way between two extremes. One extreme would be a kind of nervous self-consciousness that frets about every appearing wrinkle and every added pound and every gray hair. And on the other end, the extreme of a kind of thoughtless negligence that doesn't give a rip about what the spouse would like us to wear or eat or how to bathe or act in public. Just doesn't care. My home is the place to be me even if it makes the spouse upset. Somewhere between the two extremes of negligence and over-concern, there's a biblical way. And I simply exhort you to find it as married couples. Let me insert a warning here. Don't infer from what I've said that if you are being disappointed sexually, that therefore you have a right to check out. Marriage is infinitely more than sex. And the disappointment in that area is not an honorable discharge from the relationship. Now, besides frequency and attractiveness, let me mention one more, and it's probably the most important. Namely, the overall quality of the relationship is what determines whether sex will be satisfying in the marriage. If you're angry, if you're bitter, if you're self-pitying, if you're resentful towards each other, you don't touch each other. It's like explosives, let alone embrace or do anything else. And therefore, if that's true, then this text is a summons to all of us married couples 
to humble ourselves, to repent, to seek forgiveness and renewal and a new day. Which is why, by the way, I am so encouraged and excited about the rising tide of initiative on the part of some of you to create opportunities here at Bethlehem for marriage renewal and enrichment. I got a letter from uh, Pat Rep after Missions Week in which Pat asks me, would it be possible for Bethlehem to be a pace setter, not only in the area of frontier missions, but also in the area of marriage and family ministries? Enrichment, renewal. And my answer is, I hope so. The resources are here. The need is here. Many of you are being called in that direction here. The staff is eager to support you here. We are so excited about the possibility that God might work through your ministries to create an atmosphere at Bethlehem, where marriages can not only get off to a strong start, but be cultivated, strengthened, renewed, encouraged, healed, helped. We live in a culture where, unlike former days, there is very little support for lifelong commitments. In fact, the forces of our culture again and again, communicate to you, you are a fool if you stay in a troubled relationship. Check out. There is nothing big deal about it. That's the culture we live in. Therefore, the church must redouble its efforts to create a milieu in which another message and another power is in the air for the sake of the marriages among us. Well, so far then, celibacy is a gift to be celebrated Celibacy is not for everybody. Marriage is a dam against the flood of fornication and against the flood of adultery because it is God's appointed place for the release of sexual satisfaction or desire. And now finally, Satan uses sexual desire. I do not say Satan creates sexual desire. God created sexual desire and it's good. Satan does not create it, he uses it, he abuses it. Verse 5, do not refuse one another except perhaps by agreement for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. When sexual desire rises, Satan shifts his missile carriers into high gear. The rise of sexual desire does not mean victory for Satan. It means vulnerability to Satan. There's a very simple truth at work here. You've all experienced it, whether in the area of sexuality or in the area of some other desire. And the truth is simply this. The stronger and bigger the desire we have for something, the more vulnerable we are to deceptive rationalizations to justify satisfying it in a sinful way. Maybe food, maybe anything. The stronger the desire, the more vulnerable we are to rationalizing its fulfillment in a sinful way. 
This is why, for example, if you and your fiancé wait until you are alone in the car before you decide what is right and wrong about fornication, 99% sure you will decide in favor. Because the stronger the desire, the more easily we rationalize its sinful fulfillment. Satan takes the desire, which in itself is very healthy, very good, very normal, and he makes its power cause his proposal for sin to look plausible. We had best do our moral reflection when desire is at a low ebb so that when the wave of satanic rationalizations break over your brain, you'll have an anchor of truth. Now, let me say it again. Satan does not create sexual desire. It's a good thing. He never created anything good. His whole aim in life is to make all good things bad. There are two ways to ruin a pearl. You can cut the pearl out of the oyster before it's finished maturing. Or you can take it and throw it to swine. Satan devotes his energy to cutting the pearl of sexual desire free from the oyster of its divine origin, truth, and grace. And if Satan can get sex in an area by itself, God way over here, sex way over here, he's killed it. He has distorted it. He has ruined it, no matter what it feels like. Or if he can't pull that off, He'll try, and often they go together, to take the pearl and throw it before the swine of fornication, adultery, pornography, incest, child abuse, homosexuality, masturbation. Throw it to any of these, and it'll just get trampled underfoot in the long run. Swine don't eat pearls. They eat corn. The pearl of sexual desire is meant to grow to full beauty in the oyster of God's grace and truth. And then it is meant to be taken and put within the golden pendant of marriage. Now, there must be 200 singles in this room right now. And you say, well, what am I supposed to do with it? I don't have that pendant. I think the pearl of sexual desire for those who are in a life of celibacy, whether short-term or long-term, that pearl is meant to be a kind of atomic ball bearing in the wheels of human creativity. Two Harvard professors did a study of cultural history, and they came up with this conclusion, that the periods of sexual liberty were the poorest from a cultural point of view, whereas those periods when morality and social convention imposed restrictions on sexual activity, there was the richest creative output. It can be done by the grace of God The drive of sexuality can be converted into creative, 
productive, creative drives. Satan will do anything he can to cut off the pearl from God's grace and truth. He will do anything he can to feed it to swine. And he will do anything he can to keep single people from putting its energy to creative endeavors for Christ. Now, I close by stressing the seriousness of this. Satan is not a pushover. He holds millions firmly in his bondage and he is seeking more all the time. Donna Rasmus and I were talking yesterday and she told me of a situation that I want to tell you because it sobers you up. A person was on an airplane and skipped his meal and the person nearby queried why that was and it came out that he was fasting and praying to Satan. And the conversation went on and the discovery was made that what this person was fasting and praying for was the destruction of ministers' marriages. Now, if, if you were a Satan worshiper and you wanted to know what to pray to your father in hell, what's his will? Where would you go to find out? Go to the Bible. Because the Bible's true. The Bible tells you truly what Satan's about in the world. And you go to the Bible, and what do you find in 1 Corinthians 7? That Satan, with all his might, is in favor of adultery and against fidelity. No wonder, then, that Satan worshipers are making their aim to pray for that sort of thing. Learn from the scriptures this morning that when you battle sexual temptation, you battle Satan, a cosmic power who wants your soul. Never forget, however, in conclusion, that the Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And there is a way to resist, and I close with commending this to you all, married and single. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5 contain a key for what I think is the way out of bondage to the abuses of sexual desire. Paul says there, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality, that each one of you knows how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust, like the heathen do who do not know God. You see the key? One kind of person governs his life by the thrust of fleshly passions. Another person governs his life by holiness and honor. What's the difference? Whether you know God or not is the difference. I mean, know God. Not know about God. Know God. Paul said in Romans 1.28, since they did not approve to have God in their knowledge, he gave them up to a base mind and improper conduct. You see the connection? He said in Galatians 4.8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. In other words, the antidote, the liberating force from the bondage of Satan in the area of sexual desire is to know God. 
or as Peter puts it in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 3, Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellency. If you were to ask Paul, what can I do to get any victory over this powerful urge in my life that Satan uses to drag me down? Paul would answer, devote your energy, devote your time, devote your creativity to knowing the glory and the excellency of God. He would say the only way to combat sinful pleasure is righteous pleasure. You can't cast one devil out and leave the cravings of your heart empty. Seven will return. You must fill your life with God, the glory and excellency of God. The person who is persuaded and feels the truth of Psalm 16 in thy right hand are pleasures forevermore, and at thy side are joys uh, unending, full, complete. That person is going to be powerful in his opposition against the evil one. Because the only way Satan can get you is by convincing you that his way of satisfaction is preferable to God's way of satisfaction. And if you know God, you'll know it's not true. Now may the Son of God who came into the world to destroy the works of the devil receive triumph and glory both now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen.